Welcome to Episode 8 of History of the Marine Corps, The Colonies Go to War, Part 2. Last week, we discussed a couple of battles during the start of the American Revolutionary War. Without much of a fight, militiamen from the Northeast would head to Fort William and Mary to take guns and ammunition to support this war. They would also take a few cannons for their effort. We also discussed General Gage, the Battle of Lexington and Concord, and the start of Paul Revere's ride. The colonies were in a full confrontation with the British and surprised everyone with their tenacity and their bravery. This week, we'll take a look at General Gage's escalating tension between the colonies, life in the British Army compared to life as a patriot in the colonies, and the Second Continental Congress's decision for a military. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. As we discussed last episode, the tension between England and the colonies have escalated to new levels. The raid on Fort Williams and Mary was treason in the eyes of Great Britain, and the Battle of Lexington and Concord proved to England that the colonies would not back down. Support grew amongst the colonies as more and more colonials heard about the Battle of Lexington. On April 20th, 1775, the day after the battle, General Gage woke up to thousands of colonists surrounding Boston. The numbers were growing by the hour. Militiamen were gathering from every colony throughout the East Coast with the intention of fighting this battle. As the day grew, General Gage soon found his army outnumbered. However, General Gage had two advantages over the growing militia. One was the support from the British Navy. The British Navy had ships in the harbor and the cannons would be able to reach the militia from a distance. General Gage also had a well-positioned artillery. They were situated on a narrow strip of land connecting the then-peninsular city of Boston to the mainland city of Roxbury. These two defensive positions helped with British defenses. However, the army was trapped. Militiamen cut off access by land, so the only way the army could leave the city was by boat. This standoff would be the beginning of the Siege of Boston and is the opening phase of the American Revolutionary War. For the next 11 months, both sides would be in this position, neither having the advantage to fully defeat the other side. While this was happening, the colonies were trying to figure out how to shape the disorganized militia into a disciplined army. Militia generals did not have the same experience as generals in the British Army. Militia generals experienced the militia during peace, and most combat experience was learned from books related to past battles and historic events. They were discovering that wartime logistics were burdensome, and many of the militia generals were trying to figure out how to handle the large number of volunteers surrounding Boston. These numbers continued to grow, and food, training, leadership, and discipline were all variables not considered for the gathering. General Artemis Ward was a congressman from Massachusetts and commander-in-chief for the colony's militia. General Ward missed the Battle of Lexington and Concord due to being sick and bedridden. He directed his men from his bed, but later rode to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was a command center for the Provincial Army. Provincial troops were raised by the colonial governors and legislators for extended operations during the French and Indian Wars. 
the provincial troops differed from the militia and that they were a full-time military organization conducting extended operations. They also differed from the regular British Army and that they were recruited only for one campaign season at a time. These forces were often recruited through a quota system applied to the militia. Officers were appointed by the provincial governments. During the 18th century, militia service was increasingly seen as a privilege of the social and economic well-established, while provincial troops came to be recruited from different and less deep-rooted members of the community. The provincial generals did not have a lot of experience, and many only commanded a regiment, never an entire army. As for the men who served in the provincial army, most were free men who were between the ages of 16 to 50. Unlike the British Army, which we'll get into a little later, royal governors provided commissions to officers, and everyone in the army had to supply their own guns and ammunition. They were also required to show up for training four times a year. If the men served during a time of war, training would be more frequent. Militiamen didn't travel too far from home, and occasionally they participated in battles against local Native Americans or helped calm down a slave rebellion. They would also provide law enforcement services, such as capturing criminals and restoring order when local law enforcement could not handle the workload. Now that the colonies were fighting with Britain, trusting royal governors to commission officers was no longer an option. To compensate, the colonies turned to a more election-type system and started voting for their officers and non-commissioned officers. And just because you were voted in doesn't mean you would stay. These appointments were not permanent. If the appointed officer or non-commissioned officer wasn't working out, they could be dismissed and replaced by a more suitable candidate. This drastically changed the relationship dynamic between officers and enlisted. Knowing that their commission could be redacted at any time, officers were on a much friendlier term with enlisted men. At the time, it was common for officers to take disciplinary measures a little too far, but this new voting system made officers reconsider the punishment for fairness. The appointment of general officers was a little different, and they were selected by the Provincial Congress. By mid-1775, Every colony had its own provincial congress and was completely sidestepping any royal government that were supposed to be leading the colonies. Along with its own congress, each colony had its own army and had plans to evolve that army. The Massachusetts Provincial Congress wanted to expand their army to 30,000 men and combine forces with New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island to form the New England Army. However, there was one major roadblock. No one wanted to obey orders from other leaders in other colonies, and there was no way to force them to. A lot of time was spent convincing men that the orders given was the best option and the most practical solution. Needless to say, there was a lot of disorder during these times. Officers would constantly meet and try to come up with the best strategy, but coordination mostly involved how they could convince the men from other colonies. The command structure was non-existent, and there wasn't a way to discipline the militiamen. Free men made up the militia, so there was also the challenge of men coming and going whenever it was convenient for them. Men would only stay for a few days to a few weeks, and most wanted to return home when it was time to harvest or during the planting season. Sometimes they just left to see their families. It wasn't rare to see entire companies disappear because they all had better things to do. 
There were pros and cons with this system. Enlisted men having a say in all decisions was very frustrating and counterproductive to officers. Officers had to rely on the opinion of enlisted men, which would drastically slow down progress and sometimes turn decisions into a popularity contest. However, this structure also meant that the militiamen who did serve were extremely loyal and were fighting for a reason. They weren't there because they had to be. They were there because they wanted to be. This created a more aggressive fighter and someone who wasn't afraid to take the initiative. Entire companies and regiments came from the same town, so the militiamen serving already had a well-established relationship with every man in their unit. They trusted each other, worked with each other, and knew each other's family. They already earned each other's respect, and knowing that they are fighting alongside family, friends, and neighbors encouraged everyone to be respectful of each other, since they will all end up going back home together. This discouraged anyone from being a coward, since no one wanted to go back home with that title on their head. Service in the British Army was a little different. In 1775, the British military was one of the best forces at the time. Most of this credit is given to the British Navy, which was considered the largest maritime force in the world, but the Royal Army had its share of success. It wasn't the best as far as size goes, but Britain had a long history of war, and the constant fighting provided the army with a lot of experience, which gave Britain expertise in logistics and organization, which also allowed Britain to compensate for its lack of size. Similar to the colonial army, the rank structure was split into officers and enlisted. However, the two groups were alienated, and respect wasn't expected between the two groups. British officers came from nobility and the majority of officers earned their rank by paying for it. This was common for the time, and having men purchase their rank guaranteed that they had wealth and property and would be less likely to start a revolution against the nobility class at the time. It also guaranteed each officer would do their job. If they did not, or acted in a way that was unflattering to Great Britain, they could lose their commission, which meant losing the money they could have collected by selling the commission. The term sellout came from this practice, and many officers would sell out their commission to fund their retirement. Prices would vary depending on the rank being sold, but the lowest commission can bring in a retirement that would last more than 10 years for an average laborer. There were some restrictions in place to ensure the military would not be filled with rich, unqualified people trying to make a name for themselves. Price limits were established for each rank, and the officer who was leaving would offer his commission to the next senior officer in his command. If that officer did not have the money to purchase the commission, the offer would go to the next senior person on the totem pole. However, these restrictions weren't foolproof, and many officers would still push past qualified men simply because they could afford to purchase more expensive commissions. There were also scenarios of wealthy citizens buying commissions for their children, so they would have seniority when they did serve in the military. Many officers were the youngest child in an aristocratic family. Being the youngest meant that they would not inherit wealth from their family. However, the family would support a commission in the military as a form of some contribution to their legacy. Once in, an officer's salary would never be enough to save for a promotion, so many officers could stay in a junior position for decades. Wartime did offer opportunities for men who were in these positions. 
Officers who went above and beyond could be rewarded with the promotion. Many officers would put their lives on the line and would participate in remarkable acts as an attempt to earn that promotion without having to pay for it. Senior officers did not have to purchase their commission and full colonels and generals were appointed by the king and approved by the ministry. Enlisted soldiers were a different ball game and enlisted men were considered the bottom of the barrel and inferior to many British citizens. The majority of British enlisted men came from the peasant class of unskilled laborers. They weren't able to contribute to society in any other way, so they ended up serving in the military to make ends meet. During peacetime, Protestants made up most of the enlisted men, but when war came around, Catholics were allowed to enlist as well. Many enlisted men were also forced to join the military to avoid the death sentence after being found guilty of a crime. British military recruiters would often practice dishonest recruiting techniques to enlist future soldiers. They would approach young drunk men and offer a small amount of money for enlistment. A common technique was to put a shilling in the bottom of a beer mug and give the beer to a potential recruit. If they drink the beer and the shilling touch their lips, it was considered to be acceptance of enlistment. Sometimes, the British Army ignored all of these fraudulent practices and just kidnapped men. Britain formed the Impress Service, which forced men to serve in Britain's military. Press gangs would take men and force them to serve in the military with little to no notice. The length of service was demanding as well, and most soldiers would serve for life. The lucky few saw enlistment terms end in 21 years. Every once in a while, a fortunate soldier would be granted dismissal because they were too old, sick, or injured, but that would not happen often. Most men ended up dying or deserting. British officers hated their enlisted counterparts, and there was very little respect amongst the ranks. Enlisted men would follow orders, but it was simply because they did not want to get punished. Punishments happened often and were cruel. The most common punishment an enlisted man could face was public lashings. An enlisted man could expect anywhere from 10 to thousands of lashings depending on the crime. The colonies were disturbed by this punishment and limited the maximum number of lashes to 39. Men would often die from the punishments enacted by officers, even though many of the punishments were not designed to be deadly. The death penalty was also a common punishment and many men would receive the sentence for crimes as small as petty theft. Back in Boston, British officers sent letters to their friends and families back home. There were mixed reviews on how the colonies fought during the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Some were criticizing the tactics of firing from behind defenses and running, but many realized that the militia was becoming more organized, was able to inflict heavy casualties, and had the courage to stand up to Britain. As the word of Lexington and Concord reached the colonies, it was time for everyone to decide what side they were on. Being neutral was no longer an option, and colonies outside of New England had to decide if they were to remain loyal to England or join in the revolution against tyranny. The Second Continental Congress is where the colonies would officially choose a side. On May 10, 1775, the Second Continental Congress would assemble in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Even though many delegates from the First Continental Congress would participate in the Second, the vision of the Second Continental Congress was different. There were essentially three groups of people in the Second Continental Congress. 
The first group still believed there was hope in re-establishing the relationship with Great Britain. They agreed that Parliament would hold authority over the colonies. However, the colonies would be given the right to govern and tax themselves. The second group was the most popular. However, they still did not want independence from Britain. Colonies would govern and tax themselves, still be considered loyal to the king, and there would be a new power-sharing arrangement where England would still provide protection to the colonies. The last group knew that war was inevitable and the only option was full independence from Great Britain. As Congress gathered, the first few weeks were hectic as delegates tried to decide how to handle all the news coming in. The Battle of Lexington and Concord, the capture of Fort Ticonderoga and Crown Point by Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold, the siege of Boston and the tens of thousands of militiamen gathering, and now every colony had colonists forming armies and confiscating guns and ammunition from public armories. All of these events were a nightmare for two out of the three groups in the Second Continental Congress. All of these actions were an act of war, and the idea of negotiating with Britain seemed to get farther and farther away. In June, Congress decided that it needed to prepare for potential retaliation against Britain. They agreed to stand up an army of 10,000 men in Massachusetts and an army of 5,000 men in New York. Pennsylvania would also raise six companies of riflemen, and Maryland and Virginia would raise two companies each. Armies are expensive, so in order to support the colony's new army, Congress authorized raising two million Spanish dollars. Spanish currency was widely used in Latin America and was already circulating throughout the colonies at this time. This would eliminate any dependence on Great Britain, and the currency would continue to hold its value. In October, the Second Continental Congress also decided that it needs a navy. The intention wasn't to dominate the seas, but they did envision ships slowing down the British. The committee authorized the purchase and arming of two ships for this use, as well as the commission of a third ship. Congress approved these actions on October 13, 1775, which the U.S. Navy now recognizes as its birthday. Congress also saw the need for Marines to man these ships, and in accordance with the Continental Marine Act of 1775, the Second Continental Congress decreed, Resolved, that two battalions of Marines be raised consisting of one colonel, two lieutenant colonels, two majors, and other officers as usual in other regiments, and that they consist of an equal number of privates as with other battalions, that particular care be taken that no person be appointed to office or enlisted into said battalions, but such as are good seamen or so acquainted with maritime affairs as to be able to serve to advantage by sea when required, that they be enlisted and commissioned to serve for and during the present war between Great Britain and the colonies, unless dismissed by order of Congress, that they be distinguished by the names of the 1st and 2nd Battalions of America Marines, and that they be considered as part of the number which the Continental Army before Boston is ordered to consist of. The original plan was for the two battalions of Marines to be raised from the existing army. When George Washington got wind of this, he had issues. The Continental Army was in a period of realignment, and Washington did not want to appoint a colonel to command the two battalions of Marines. He argued that raising the two battalions would cause the army time, anxiety, pain, and ultimately weaken it. Washington suggested that the Marines be raised in New York and Philadelphia. Congress ended up relieving Washington of his responsibility. 
they ordered Washington to suspend the raising of Marine battalions in order they be created independently of the Army. On November 28th, Samuel Nicholas would be commissioned and would take this role. With the Marine Corps created and Samuel Nicholas appointed, it's time to kick some ass. Next week, the Marines prepare for action. Thanks for joining. Next week, we'll finally start getting into some Marine Corps battles. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.